intro video I've ever seen. Um, hey, church, grab a Bible. Turn with me to Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2 will be where we spend the majority of our time in God's Word this morning. And as you're turning there, I wanted to offer a quick update on how God is building His church and building His campus, this campus of Coastal in Williamsburg. Pastor Sean asked me to share a little bit about what the Lord has been doing, and I wanted to share it with you all for a couple reasons this morning. One, to just encourage you. Two, to remind you, like I said earlier, how God is working. So, as a campus, Coastal Williamsburg has now been meeting for four months, and we sent about 150, maybe 200 people from Yorktown to Williamsburg. By God's grace, we are now averaging over 300 people on a Sunday. It's been, yeah, praise God. It's been incredible and just, uh, we're a mobile church. And so to see people come every week, two hours early to come help set up kids spaces and to, to fold chairs and to set up chairs has been amazing. We've started a student ministry. We have a college ministry with college students coming weekly. I think Pastor Sean shared this story a few months back. We had a bus donated to us by a member of our congregation. We're now using that bus to shuttle people from campus of William & Mary to Walsingham Academy. We have had five baptisms, which I was really, really excited about last month. It's incredible to see. And then honestly, church, one of the numbers that I think I'm most encouraged by is last month we held our first We Are Coastal class, and we had over 30 people attend. Now, here's, yeah, let's praise God. Here's what, that, here's what that showed me, and here's what I've been seeing over the past four months as we meet weekly as a church in Williamsburg. The model that we have here is really simple, and by God's grace, it's proving again and again to be really effective. I mean, think about what our mission is as a church. We exist to develop authentic followers of Jesus, and we do that real simply. We connect, grow, serve, and multiply. That's all we have to offer people. And through that, and through the firm foundation of the gospel, Christ is building his church it's been incredible to see how God's doing that in Williamsburg, how God has built Coastal off the foundation of the gospel for 20 years here in your town. And my prayer as one of the pastors here is that God would continue to build his church for the next 20 years and beyond here and in Williamsburg for the glory of Jesus. That's why we're here. We're here because we are a group of sinners, a group of sinners, rebels in the sight of a holy God who have been redeemed by the mercy and grace of Christ. That's what we have to offer people, and it's just amazing to see how Christ is building his church. It's a simple message, and this morning we're going to look at a simple message. This morning it's week two of our Unlikely Family Tree series, week two of our series through Matthew 1's Lineage of Jesus. We talked about this last week, that God shows some unlikely characters to be in the lineage of the Messiah. And last week we looked at the story of Judah and Tamar. Today in Joshua 2, we'll see the story of Rahab. And in Rahab's story, we're going to continue a theme that I think began last week. God is in the business of bringing beauty out of brokenness, of redeeming lives that looked unredeemable, of saving people who looked unsavable. He's done that in my life. He's done that in many of our lives. And we're going to see this morning 
that he does it through Rahab, an ancestor of Jesus. And Rahab was about as unlikely of a candidate for redemption as it gets, but this is what God does. And so here's how I'm going to set up our time this morning. I said I'll keep things simple. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll walk through this text together, and I'm going to pull out four key lessons that we as Christians can learn about how God saves his people and how God redeems his people. So let me pray for us right now, and then we'll dive in. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for already what's been a joyful morning, God, to see uh, little ones learning about Christ and then singing about Christ. What an encouraging thing that is, Lord. And um, it's awesome to sit here and to sing scriptural truths, God. We, we don't take that for granted, Father. Even, even now, as we pray, we understand that our prayers are bought by the blood of Jesus, When we speak to you, God, we come through Jesus, our one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so, God, we pray now that for the next few minutes, you would give us a holy moment where we open your holy, inerrant, infallible word, and that you would do whatever you want to do, whatever you want to accomplish through the preached word this morning. God, I know there are those of us in here who need comfort. Father, offer that comfort from the scriptures. I know, God, that in a gathering of this size, there are those of us that need conviction. I pray that you would bring conviction from your word this morning. Bring encouragement, Lord Jesus. We pray Psalm 119. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your law. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. All right, church, Joshua chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Let's dive in. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go and view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came to a house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. Let me pause here and set the scene for a minute. I want to make sure that we're all on the same page. As Joshua 2 begins, here's what's going on in the life of Israel. Moses had died, and Joshua, his successor, had assumed leadership of the people of Israel. The people had been wandering in the desert for 40 years, and the time had finally come for them to take the promised land, the land of Canaan, that God had promised to Abraham 400 years earlier. Now, this new leader, Joshua, has some military experience. He led the effort to defeat the Amalekites in Exodus 17, and he wants to make sure that Israel is successful as they begin taking the promised land, and so he sends in some spies to gain intel on the city of Jericho, which was on the eastern border of the Promised Land, a little bit north of the Dead Sea, and right on the banks of the Jordan River. Verse 1 tells us he sent the spies out secretly. This was a reconnaissance mission. And so likely the spies had to cross the river by night and sneak into the city under the cover of darkness. We don't know how long they were there, but they end up taking refuge in the house of a prostitute named Rahab. Let's keep reading verse 2. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search all the land. So clearly, church, the spies were busted. Someone must have seen them sneaking around the city and going into Rahab's house. The king hears about it, and so he sends some of his guys to go and investigate. And this is where the story takes a turn. Verse 4. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. 
And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the forts, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So Rahab had hidden the spies, and now she covers for them, telling the king's men that the spies had escaped before the gates of the city were shut at sundown. Now, something I want us to understand here, Middle Eastern laws of hospitality were a big deal. If someone came to take refuge in your home, even if it was your own worst enemy, the host was obligated to protect their guests, even with their very lives. And we see Rahab doing that here, even lying to maintain the safety of the spies. Now, we don't have time for an ethics class this morning, and that's not the focus of this passage, but I do want to address a question that, if you're like me, might be popping up in some of your minds. Rahab lies. Rahab lies to protect the spies. And God, in his word, makes it clear that lying is falsehood, that lying is sin. God is a God of truth, and he commands his people in both Old and New Testaments to be people of truth. So what's the deal? Did Rahab sin by lying? Honestly, and this might leave some of you unsatisfied, the answer is complicated. Here's what we know for sure. We're going to see this later on in our time. Rahab is commended twice in the New Testament, in Hebrews and in the book of James. And both times, she's praised for giving lodging. She's praised for welcoming the spies. She is never praised for lying. And nowhere in the Bible is her deceit commended. Her faith is. And as we'll see later on in this passage, that faith stemmed from a right and reverent fear of the Lord. So, humbly and with open hands, here's where I land. In this particular life-threatening situation, motivated by the fear of the Lord, Rahab did what she thought she had to do. And as we'll see, God in his grace ended up forgiving her deceit and covering over her sin. John Calvin put it this way, and still the act of Rahab is not devoid of the praise of virtue, although it was not spotlessly pure. For it often happens that while the saints study to hold the right path, they deviate into circuitous courses. I just wanted to say circuitous from the pulpit. By the kindness of God, the fault is suppressed and not taken into account. So let me summarize Calvin here. He's arguing that Rahab's good deed is tainted by sin. But by the kindness of God, that sin is overlooked. And honestly, church, I praise God for this because there's not a person in this room this morning, myself included, whose good deeds aren't also tainted by sin. Think about it. In our very best moments, even in our moments when we're at our best, there's still an indwelling sin nature in us that craves both recognition or reward. And while we might be able to suppress it on the surface or watch it decrease over time as we mature in Christ, it's still there, which means it's impossible for us as Christians to serve God perfectly. Now, this could be a depressing realization until we study the story of Rahab. By God's grace, this story reinforces the scriptural principle that despite our sin, what we do here on earth actually matters. 
that God cares about our good works. They have eternal consequence. God doesn't throw out our good deeds because we didn't do them perfectly. This means that for the Christian in the room this morning, you don't have to wait until you're perfect, that day will never come, until you start leveraging your life for the kingdom. There's no mark of spiritual maturity before God can start using you. We see that in the story of Rahab, that God uses broken sinners like me and like you to accomplish his good purposes here on earth. All right, I said we didn't have time for an ethics lesson, and then I gave us an ethics lesson. Let's read. Let's read now to the end of the chapter, and we'll pull out some application. Verse 8, before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is the God of heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Verse 15, then she let them down by a rope through the window For her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills where the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go on your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house, your father and mother, your brothers, all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away and they departed. She tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went to the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills, passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands and also the inhabitants of the earth or the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. All right, here's what's happened. Rahab tells the spies what everyone knows in Jericho. The people of the city have heard of the miracle working, Red Sea parting, kingdom overthrowing God of Israel. And they're terrified. The text says that their hearts have melted in fear. Now, let me tell you why they're afraid. In Jericho, they worshipped a multitude of false gods, gods of fertility, gods of the sun and moon, gods of the harvest, gods who claimed dominion over a very specific area of life. And now, all of a sudden, they're coming face to face with the God of heaven and earth, one God who claims dominion over everything. And this God is about to bring judgment on a people who have been reveling in wickedness for centuries. 
Think the worst of the worst, cannibalism, child sacrifice, the worst of sexual depravity. And so Rahab, in the fear of and faith in the Lord, strikes to deal with the spies. She'll help them escape safely if they promise refuge and protection for her family when the Israelites overthrow the city. The spies agree their lives for hers. And if you flip over a couple chapters to Joshua 6, when the walls of Jericho come crumbling down, Rahab and her family survive and are saved. Rahab's risk led to Rahab's redemption. And her faith in the power of God ultimately led to her inclusion in the family of God. Joshua 6 ends with Rahab marrying an Israelite. And then, according to Matthew chapter 1, is then chosen to continue the messianic line that would lead to Boaz, King David, and then centuries later, Jesus the Christ. God brings beauty out of brokenness, church. He redeems the unredeemable, a prostitute to the pagans, becomes a matriarch to the Messiah. Merry Christmas. Amen. Praise God for this story. With the remainder of our time, I want to pull out four lessons. Four lessons for us as a church today. I want us to see the how. We see this really spectacular story of redemption. I want us to see how does God redeem in the Rahab story and how does God redeem us as Christians today? What do we learn about salvation? So lesson number one, you have this in your notes. Salvation is offered by grace through faith. If you've been around church for any amount of time, this statement probably isn't new to you. The Rahab story probably isn't new to you. But here's the thing. When I've heard this story told before, I've heard it summarized that Rahab's faith is what saves her. And as Christians, likewise, it's our faith that saves us. And this sounds good, it sounds right, but at the end of the day, it's actually a little misleading. Let me show you what I mean. In the Joshua story, Rahab isn't saved by her faith. She's saved by the Israelites. The Israelites are the ones that pull Rahab and her family out of the destruction of Jericho. Now, don't get me wrong. Her faith plays a critical role. She had faith that she would be saved, but her faith was the means by which she was saved. It's what's used to save her. The Israelites did the actual saving. Think about it another way. Imagine you were trapped in a pit 20 feet down. A tiny pit, walls all around you, no doors, no way for you to climb out of this pit. You're in a pretty hopeless situation. You're stuck down there, and you realize that if no one rescues you, you're either going to die of thirst or you'll starve to death. And the gravity of your situation starts to hit you. You are utterly hopeless and helpless in that moment. And then all of a sudden, the light at the top of the pit, someone appears. It's a rescuer. Someone has come to rescue you. And here's what they do. They lower down a rope, and you grab a hold of the rope, and they pull you up out of the pit. And in that moment, you're crying tears of joy because you have your life back. You realize that you've been saved. You're filled with gratitude. Now, imagine a couple weeks go by, and you're recounting that story to your friends and family. They're grateful that you're alive, and you're explaining to them what happened. In that moment, as you're recounting that story, do you say that the rope saved you? No. The rope was the tool by which the rescuer used to save you. You weren't saved by a rope. You were saved by a rescuer. 
We have to see this, church. You and I are not saved by a rope. We are saved by a rescuer. We're saved not by our faith, but by our God and all that he is for us in the person and work of Jesus. And God, in his grace, chooses to use our faith to accomplish our salvation, like the rescuer using the rope. This is critical for us to understand because when we talk about our faith saving us, what that does is it unintentionally takes credit for our own salvation. It's our faith. Instead of glorifying the God who has mercy on us and who has saved us. The distinction is really critical. Look at Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, a text that I'm sure many of us have memorized. For by grace you have been saved through what, church? Faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The it here in verse 8 is referring to every aspect of the salvation event. Grace is a gift. Salvation is a gift. And even our faith, the means by which we are saved, the way God brings about salvation is a gift from God. Verse 9 hammers this idea home. Verse 9, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Now, here's what this means for us today. If you are a Christian in the room, praise God. Because God has given you the gift of salvation by grace through faith. You didn't earn it. You didn't contribute to it. We all need it. And because there's no room for boasting, that means that there is equality for us as Christians at the foot of the cross. In this church, there are no first class, second class, or third class Christians because we've all been saved by God's grace, not our own works, which means that whether you have a past like Rahab or you've been in church your entire life, we can glorify God together, the God who's rich in mercy and the God who's washed away all of our sin through the person and work of Jesus. We praise God for this and we thank God for this. That's step one. While we start there with thanksgiving and praise, we don't stop there. Lesson number two we see from this story, salvation is manifested by works. Salvation is manifested, made known by works. Now, here's how we see this in the Rahab story. God has given Rahab legitimate saving faith as a gift. That's where she starts with the spies. When we meet her, God has already given her faith. She tells them in the beginning in verse 9 that she's heard about God and that she believes in God, enough to be convinced that God is the God of heaven and earth, the one who has all the power. She has faith in God. But then, as we saw, that faith is then proven authentic by what she does next. She provides a welcome for the spies and takes genuine risk for the kingdom of God. And in doing so, she demonstrates that her faith has gone from intellectual belief to actual life change. Rahab puts something on the line. She doesn't just say, I believe in your God, the God of heaven and earth, but good luck getting out of the city by yourself. No, her works proved that her faith was genuine. Here's what we need to see. True saving faith, Coastal, is always manifested by a changed life. A changed life and the good works that come from it aren't necessary for salvation, but they're evidence of salvation. In James 2, we see this unpacked at length. James writes that faith without works is dead in James 2.17, and that faith apart from works is useless in James 2.20. And then to illustrate his point, James uses Rahab. He uses our story today, the story of Rahab, James 2, verses 25 through 26. 
And in the same way was also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Listen, church, here's how this hits home for us. If we claim to love God, we claim to have faith in God, yet are living lives that look remarkably like the rest of the world with intentional disobedience to his commands, then there's a very real chance that we don't actually possess saving faith. Let's say this real clearly. Habitual, unrepentant sin and faith in Christ do not go hand in hand. I want to repeat that and let the Spirit apply it however he wants. Habitual, unrepentant sin and genuine regeneration, new life, don't go hand in hand. If we claim to love God, our lives will inevitably be marked by authentic obedience to his commands. Not perfect obedience, no Christian is perfect, but real obedience, a zeal to please and obey the God who saved us, the God we love. Obedience and love go hand in hand in the scriptures. We put it another way. Many of you are probably familiar with the 1987 cinematic masterpiece, The Princess Bride. Anyone like The Princess Bride? 8 a.m. loved it. Okay, praise God. One of my favorite movies of all time. The Princess Bride is this love story between a beautiful princess named Buttercup and a humble farm boy named Wesley. And as the movie starts, Buttercup is in this position of authority over Wesley, and she gives him different commands. And every time Buttercup gives Wesley a command, he has the same three-word answer for her. Let's see if my cinephiles get it. As you what? As you wish. Okay, every time Buttercup would tell Wesley to do something, fill up the water pail or whatever, he says, looks at her and says, as you wish. Now, as the movie progresses, the narrator, the grandpa who's reading the story to the little boy, explains that Buttercup starts to realize that every time Wesley was saying, as you wish, he literally meant, I love you. Why was this the case? It's because for Wesley, the humble farm boy, Obedience to the commands of his princess and love and genuine affection for the princess went hand in hand. Listen, church, our relationship with God is not that different. When we look at God and we say, I love you, if that I love you is not backed up with real and legitimate life change, those words are hollow. They don't mean anything. It's a true faith has been given to us as a gift and then is proven, manifested by a changed life, manifested by works. All right, let's hit these last two quickly and then I'll wrap up. Number three, salvation is accessible to all people. Salvation is accessible to all people, to everyone. I mentioned at the beginning of our time that Rahab was about as unlikely of a candidate for redemption as we can get, and this is the case for a couple of reasons. Number one, her profession and her past. Again, Rahab was a prostitute, literally making her living off of sexual immorality. She was the lowest of the low in an already depraved environment. But there's another reason why if we were the ones creating the lineage of Jesus, we might leave her off the list. See, Rahab was also a Gentile, as in she wasn't Jewish. She wasn't part of ethnic Israel, the people of God. 
Up until this point in the Bible, Israel was really just one big family divided into 12 tribes who were descended from the 12 sons of Jacob. Remember God's promise to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. In Genesis 12, God promises that through Abraham's offspring, all families of the earth will be blessed. Until, or up until Joshua 2, it really was just one family that was being blessed, the family of Abraham, the nation of Israel. And so Rahab's inclusion into the blessing of Israel was significant. It shows us that God's plan of redemption goes far beyond ethnicity. Rahab was the first Gentile convert, and it foreshadows the fact that Jesus came to be the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, offering salvation to all people, making it accessible to all people, whether Jew or Gentile. So if you're here this morning and you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian, I want to speak directly to you for a moment. The story of Rahab teaches that no matter what you look like, no matter where you're from, or no matter what you've done, the offer of salvation through Christ, the offer of forgiveness through Christ is accessible and on the table for you right now. Like, remember what we said a few minutes ago. It's a gift. We can't earn it. So here's what I want you to know, the core facts of the gospel. And if you've been around here for a while, you know these. Jesus is God. Jesus died on the cross for our sin, and Jesus bodily rose from the dead. Now, what do we do with that gospel? We repent of our sin, believe in the message of the gospel, and we receive Christ into our lives. When we do that, we experience redemption, salvation, just like Rahab. And then just like Rahab, we are welcomed into a new family. That offer is available for everyone this morning. God has made it so. How do I know that? How do I know that our salvation is a gift, that it's available to everyone? How do I know that it's assured? I want to close our time with our last point, and I want to give us some assurance. Number four, salvation is assured by the scarlet thread of grace. One last thing I want us to see from Joshua 2 this morning. When the spies agree to spare Rahab and her family, they give her a sign by which she's to mark her house So the Israelite army knows who needs to be protected. And verse 18 tells us what that sign is. It's a scarlet cord. Rahab is to hang the cord out of her window, and it'll provide a covering for her and her family. Here's what I want us to understand, Coastal. This scarlet cord is actually pretty significant. There's a bigger picture here. I've said this before. The Bible is made up of 66 different books that all tell the same story. It's not disjointed or random, but linear and purposeful. From Genesis to Revelation, there is a grand redemptive narrative that's playing out. And in this narrative, when something's repeated over and over again, it's telling us something, reminding us of something, hinting at something. Think about what this scarlet cord in Joshua 2 is representing. For Rahab, it's a covering, a refuge, a way to make sure that Rahab and her family are redeemed. But this isn't the first time in the Bible we see the scarlet cord, and it won't be the last. Think back with me to Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, how was their sin atoned for? How was it covered? God killed an animal, sewing together skins to give them a covering. Scarlet blood was shed. It was the first sacrifice for sin. Remember just last week in Genesis 38, when Tamar gives birth to her twins, Zerah is marked with a scarlet cord. 
reminder that God was still working to redeem sin and wickedness in the line of Judah. On the night before the first Passover, as Israel was awaiting escape in Egypt, terrified because they didn't want the angel of death to come to their camp, what did they do to make sure that God passed over their camp? They killed a lamb. And they took the scarlet blood of the lamb and they poured it on the door. The people of God are in the wilderness constructing the first tabernacle to worship God. What's used to weave together the garments of the priests? Exodus 39 tells us it's scarlet thread. We're seeing it over and over and over again. Here in Joshua 2, Rahab uses scarlet thread as a covering, a means of redemption. Think then, church, of hundreds of years of sacrifices in the temple, animals being killed, shedding their blood to temporarily atone for the sins of the people, scarlet running down over the altar, all in an attempt to earn forgiveness of sins. We have to see this, church, for thousands of years, God had been waiting, hinting, foreshadowing a day when the scarlet thread of grace would once and for all cover over the sin of mankind. And every story of brokenness, every story of Judah and Tamar, every Rahab, every moment of failure and heartbreak in your life and in my life would one day be covered by the scarlet thread of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's the message of this story. Jesus Shedding his blood for my sin and for your sin, offering not a temporary atonement, church, but a permanent one, and accomplishing our salvation on the cross. I know this is true because of the scarlet blood of Jesus. That's the word for us this morning. And so I want to close, but I want to have you prompt us in one of two ways. Number one, if you're a Christian in the room this morning, I think our response as Christians is to praise God, to praise God for this word, to praise God for the fact that our salvation has been given to us as a gift. We didn't earn it. We didn't contribute to it. God in his mercy gave it to us. And then he assured it by sending his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sin and to rise up from the grave. He's made it possible. He has stamped his approval. He's made it final. He assured it by the work of Jesus. So for us as Christians, Take a moment this morning and do some heart examination. We saw that real genuine faith leads to life change. Is that evident in your life? Are you connecting, growing, serving, and multiplying? Start there. Like, is this a bedrock of your life, a bedrock of your week, coming to worship with your church family? Are you growing in a small group right now? Do you have people in this room who know you? This is a big room, church. It's easy to be anonymous in here. We don't see a picture of anonymity in the New Testament. You are to be known. You're truly saved. You want to be truly known by your church family. And then finally, are you serving? Like really serving, not doing something to check a box, but leveraging your life for the gospel. Maybe it's to raise up the next generation. We saw a reminder this morning of how critical and important that is. And then finally, maybe for you, you're here this morning, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. And if that's you, Again, the offer is on the table. The scarlet blood of Christ is sufficient to cover over my sin and everyone else's sin in this room. That offer is for you. So let's do this, church. Let me invite you to stand. We're going to go out singing this morning. I want to pray for us. I'm going to invite our prayer team up as well. If you have questions about what it might mean to follow Jesus, questions about this scarlet thread of grace runs from Genesis to Revelation. If you have sin you want to deal with this morning, we just can pray for you this morning. Come up, talk to our prayer team. Come talk to me. I'd love to get to know you, to hear your story, to pray with you. 
And if you're a Christian here this morning, let's go out praising God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this sweet time this morning as a church family where we got to rejoice in your goodness. We get to watch as little kids saying truths about scriptures they don't even fully understand yet. We thank you for the story of redemption in Joshua chapter 2. God, you redeemed Rahab and you have redeemed us. I think if we're honest, there's probably a little bit of Rahab in every single person in this room. And by your grace and your mercy and your love, you covered over our sin by the scarlet blood of Jesus. And so as Christians, as a church family, we come together this morning just to say, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. And for those of us who are not followers of Jesus in this room, I want to pray for you. I, I know that you're here this morning. Maybe you came to watch a grandkid sing. Maybe you stumbled in this morning. Maybe you, you figured this holiday season, time to get back in church. I want you to know this. God has used every ounce of brokenness and disappointment in your life to bring you to this moment right now. The offer of salvation, the offer of new life, the offer of forgiveness is on the table. When we repent of our sin, believe in the message of the gospel and receive Christ into our lives, just like Rahab, we are redeemed and welcomed into the family of God. So God, we praise you this morning. We're grateful for this church family. We're grateful for your word. And above all, we're grateful for your son, Jesus. Accept our praise now. It's in his name we pray. 